Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Tonight, we'll look at the Civil War from the viewpoint of Breckenridge County, Kentucky, a location in a Union state, but one where slavery had deep roots. From this common starting point, we'll see the war through two very different sets of eyes. Those of Joseph Holt, one-time slaveholder and later Lincoln's Judge Advocate General, and those of Sandy Holt, one-time human property of the Holt family and later member of the 118th Regiment of United States Colored Troops. We'll follow their stories as described in the book Slaves, Slaveholders, and Kentucky Communities, A Kentucky Communities Struggle Toward Freedom with author Elizabeth D. Leonard tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you once again from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Greenville is the home of East Carolina University. But I'm not in my office tonight, not speaking for the university, even when I am in the office, not doing so, as you know, just for myself. And likewise, guest speaks only for herself tonight, as we always do. Well, it's February, almost the end of February 2019. 
It is halfway through the semester. Spring break is approaching. Baseball has started. This is the one sport East Carolina gets, in some ways, most, well, football gets everyone excited, but frustrated and angry and disappointed. Uh, baseball, the team is ranked in the top 10 nationally, and uh, uh, that's the sport people have the highest hopes for. This year's team started out strong, lost the last two games, so I'm not free to talk about them without jinxing a winning streak, like always happens when I mention any of our teams. And as we speak here tonight, um, live on some other channel, I believe men's basketball is playing top 10 ranked Houston at this very moment. I imagine they will have to send out for extra light bulbs for the scoreboard to accommodate the number of points Houston is going to score. This could be a three-digit margin of defeat for the Pirates. It's not going to be pretty. Better to be here inside talking Civil War with you than, than paying attention to that. Well, as I said, spring break is coming up. Uh, couldn't be more welcome. Not that school is uh, in any way uh, an unpleasant thing to be part of, but it gets to be a drain. You, you get looking forward to the break, a chance to catch up to write some lecture notes in advance. I've had the always exciting experience of teaching a course for the first time this semester. This is one on constitutional history. We're just up to the Dred Scott decision now, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been enlivened by the constitutional crises happening uh, before our eyes between the various branches of the federal government, and uh, the students are able to apply their knowledge, newfound knowledge of the Constitution to uh, to what they're seeing in the news. It's made us all astonishingly aware of how incredibly uh, negligent the media tends to be in reporting significant details about what the Constitution actually says, what the National Emergency Emergencies Act actually says. Uh, lots of, of heat, but not, not very much light in some of those cases. Uh, spring break means no live show next week. Uh, looking ahead on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, our next uh, live program will be on March 13th with Ashley Whitehead Lusky of the Civil War Institute, and we'll follow that with Shauna Devine, uh, a new book on the medical care during the Civil War, learning from the wounded, and finish the month of March 2019 with Jason Phillips and his new book on the looming Civil War. The view of the Civil War from before it happened, how Americans imagined such a conflict might play out. If you find yourself unable to bear the thought of a week without Civil War talk radio, uh, on Monday, March 11th, I will be doing a podcast on another show. It's a show called Breaking Free. I don't know what network it's on. Uh, the host is Marilyn Shannon. I'm not entirely sure how I got invited to do this. It's not a history or Civil War program. It's more of a, I think, life coach, self-help sort of thing. Uh, so I'm not sure what I'm even going to be able to talk about. Something about Abraham Lincoln, apparently. So if you're curious to hear me on the other side of the microphone being interviewed and actually watching because it's a visual uh, podcast, uh, that'll be on March 11th. And you can download it after that, Google Breaking Free, and maybe, I think there's an old movie 
about bicycles with that name, but maybe you'll find the podcast. Who knows? Last week, I messed up in telling you about future plans. I mentioned the Seminary Ridge Historical Museum in Gettysburg, which is hosting a symposium on March 16th, Saturday, March 16th, and I confused it with another event and said, uh, incorrectly failed to state that this is a, a, a full-day symposium for which guests must register and pay in advance. It's not an open, free event. Uh, you just wander in and out. It's called Preachers, Soldiers, War. Daryl Black, who's been on the show, uh, the director of the Historical Museum at Seminary Ridge, will be speaking, among others. Uh, it sounds like a really good event. If you're anywhere in the vicinity, uh, go to seminaryridgemuseum.org and look at their website, learn about the museum. Uh, listen to the interview uh, Daryl and I recorded last summer uh, here on Civil War Talk Radio and sign up for this excellent symposium. Another symposium, of course, that you hear about every week, Civil War Institute, comes up in June of 2019. It will feature all kinds of interesting people, many of whom, uh, I would say most of whom have been on the show at this point. Gary Gallagher, Ed Ayers, Peter Carmichael, uh, Earl Hess, Steve Barry, Aaron Sheehan, Dean, Amy Taylor hasn't been on yet, but she'll be on in a week or two, uh, and so on. Uh, Joan Cashin hasn't been on yet, but she'll be on later this season, and so on. Many other familiar names. Uh, so look into that. It's June 14th through 19th. It features things like uh, dine-in or luncheon, where you sign up and you have a meal with one of the, the faculty from the program, and you can ask them questions. I'll be there uh, just hanging out, signing up guests for next year's season, uh, ne- next season's shows on Civil War Talk Radio. And while I won't be a formal dine-in uh, program person, you're welcome to make it your own dining. Come sit next to me in the Gettysburg College student food service area, and uh, we'll make make room at the table, move some of the students from the summer lacrosse camp down to the other end of the table and and we'll have our own dine in there it will be fun other speaking engagements if you're curious april 4th i'll be in petersburg uh, virginia at the civil war roundtable and may 13th raleigh civil war roundtable and of course this hallowed ground stephen ambrose historical tours may 18 through 26 uh, sign up it should be fun it's always fun uh, I always say that f- there's fun in it. We have we have moments that are fun, but we have moments that are uh, important. I'll say serious, moving, interesting, educational. It's worth doing. You can learn about everything we're doing here, as always, from the Facebook page "Impediments of War" or the the uh, website "ImpedimentsofWar.org." Mark Gaffney is the man who makes all those things happen. Uh, because of his efforts and because of your listening, our numbers continue to grow. It, uh, I find it amazing. This month will be possibly our, our largest listener month ever. We're approaching 60,000 hits each month. Uh, it, it's very much appreciated that uh, so many of you take time to listen to this. And the reason you do is not to hear me talk, but to hear our guest talk. And our guest tonight is the John J. and Cornelia V. Gibson Professor of History at Colby College. Her name is Elizabeth Leonard. She's an old friend of the show, last on uh, a surprisingly long time ago. Uh, Elizabeth, are you there? 
I am here. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, welcome back. I, I'm shocked to realize it was 2005 when we talked about uh, uh, Lincoln's Avengers, your, oh. one of your earlier books. That, that's a long time ago. Yeah, there's been a little, there's been some productivity in between that we somehow missed getting on the show. Well, well, I'm glad, yes, I'm glad we're catching up on that. Uh, Now, you teach at Colby College in, uh, that's in Waterville, I believe. Waterville, Maine. The, uh, my older daughter graduated, uh, shockingly, five years ago now from your your NESCAC rivals uh, down in Brunswick, Maine at Bowdoin College. Uh, oh, so for goodness I, sake! My son went to to Bowdoin College, and he graduated. Uh, let's see, two years ago, three years ago, something. Okay. Like, so they overlapped. I, I no, I guess they didn't. Yeah, they would have overlapped. Yeah, yeah. But, no, they would have. Sure. We, did she run track? Uh, she did. She ran cross country. Oh, for uh, goodness' sake! They probably knew each other. Well, so uh, well, uh, ask your your son about Caroline Prokopovich. And, I will. Uh, and, and and what's your son's name, if, if you don't mind? Anthony Bellavia. Okay, well, we'll I'll check with Caroline and see if he was a name. triple jumper. That was his event, and he loved it. Wow, Caroline was was very much a, a walk on on the the cross country. She wasn't uh, high, you know, high varsity level. Uh, oh, at that. Wow. She she really enjoyed it, and, and yeah. Uh, had a great time at that that institution. It's a great school, I I must say. We. Uh, it's a great school. So, um, you, you, you've had, you say, much productivity since 2005. The book you wrote then, Lincoln's Avengers, Justice, mm-hmm. Revenge, and Reunion After the Civil War, featured uh, the, the man who oversaw the trial of the conspirators, uh, Judge Joseph Holt. And mm-hmm. now you come back to him in this book. Uh, why, what, what draws you back to Joe Holt? Well, uh, I actually, since 2005, wrote a big biography of Joseph Holt called Lincoln's Forgotten Ally, mm-hmm. which uh, was the winner of the one, a co-winner of the 2012 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize. I don't know how we missed talking about that. Book. I, 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 I have the book on my shelf too. I, I really don't know how that one slipped by. Uh, belated congratulations on oh, that. Okay. It's a wonderful prize. Um, it, so when I wrote that biography, Joseph Holt had uh, intrigued me, obviously, for quite a while. I had, in fact, encountered him for the first time in my very first book, which is uh, Yankee Women, mm-hmm. because in that book I dealt with uh, Dr. Mary Walker, who was the only woman doctor to serve in the Union Army's medical corps. And she wanted to stay on after the war, and it was Holt, as Judge Advocate General, who wrote the the legal brief that gave Andrew Johnson the justification to dismiss her hmm. because there was no um, there was no precedent for a woman serving in the army in the military staff, the medical staff, uh, even in peacetime. So I first encountered him there, and. Then, and he was also the person who recommended giving her the Congressional Medal of Honor. Then I met him again when I was working on the Lincoln's Avengers story, and he just fascinated me. So I wrote this long biography of him. He lived for, he lived a good long life from 1807, I believe, until 1894, a rich and robust life. 
And, but I still had questions left over. And that's where I, that it's that, those questions that led me to the book that we're talking about tonight. So, uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit about Holt, uh, who he was for those who haven't, uh, read the biography or had a chance to read, uh, uh, either of the earlier books, but we're going to take a break in a minute. But before we do that, let's quickly introduce uh, uh, the other main character. Yes, among Sandy. many, uh, Sandy. Sandy Holt. Tell us who he was. Well, Sandy Holt was one of Joseph Holt's slaves prior to Joseph Holt moving to Washington in 1857. At which point he left his remaining slaves with his brother Thomas in Breckenridge County at the family homestead, and Sandy was one of the ones he left. And I had read in my various perusings of Holt's archival materials the names of many slaves and kept track of them, but I never was quite sure how much I'd be able to find out about them. And Sandy was one I later was able to go back to and rediscover. And that was very exciting for me. So that's how he becomes another central character in the story. So, Will, now he does not go to uh, Washington, as you say, with Holt. Holt no. went to Washington. At this point, he's in the Buchanan administration. Is that right? Right. He started out as Buchanan's postmaster general and then became, no, as his, uh, I'm sorry, his patent uh, official and then postmaster general and then secretary of war. He was the last secretary of war in the Buchanan administration. And during the secession winter, actually, and that's one of the things I find fascinating that his, that part of his story, as so much of his story is erased from history, that part you'd think we'd remember, but very few people have heard of him. He is an obscure figure, but absolutely a fascinating one. One of the things most interesting about him, and one that you bring up uh, very clearly, is that he is, a, you know, a product of his times, of his his yeah. place. Uh, he's a slaveholder, and his attitude toward abolitionists is uh, is very negative. Yes, initially so, and and just to back up and and go, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's a he's an obscure character in terms of our historical memory but in his day he was definitely not obscure he was a huge character in his day and so <laughs> famous so well known that people were recommending that he run against lincoln in 1860 so he was a very big man in the democratic party but history has sort of forgotten him uh fortunately there's a tremendous paper trail that we can follow to learn about Joseph Holt, um, but it's a much bigger challenge to learn a lot about his former slaves. Well, let, let's take a pause here and come back on that point. Uh, we'll discuss more of the these two members of the, the Holt uh, community. They are described in the book, Slaves, Slaveholders, and a Kentucky Community's Struggle Toward Freedom. With our written by our guest tonight, Elizabeth Leonard. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stay- 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com psych up live with host dr suzanne phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues this show addresses topics as varied as marital stress insomnia depression raising teens campus violence and building self-resilience Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Elizabeth D. Leonard, author of Slaves, Slaveholders, and the Kentucky Community's Struggle Toward Freedom. It is a story uh, featuring Lincoln's Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt and Sandy Holt of the 118th United States Colored Troops, who at one time had been owned under the system of chattel slavery by the Holt family and uh, Joseph Holt. Uh, Elizabeth, one of the things you, you start out your book with is a description of the the challenge, the the, the disparate nature of historical sources for these two characters and you you describe working with a student and how that really brought home the challenge of uh, different levels of historical sourcing for different people. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so I, I had written the biography of Joseph Holt and I was still very curious because I had never been able to find a specific document or journal entry or letter that explained to me how he made this transition from being a slave owner to somebody who's so 
vehemently supported emancipation and the arming of black soldiers and so on. So I had these lingering questions Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about pursuing those questions. And around that time, I had a a independent study student, an African-American young woman who wanted very much to study her family's history. And I had done some work using family stuff that I have and then databases like Ancestry.com and so on to trace my own family history. And I said, well, let's, we'll do it together and we'll not only see what we can find out about your history, but we'll explore the phenomenon of why of if it's we'll just explore whether in fact it's easier for me to find out material about my family than it is for you to find out material about yours, especially the deeper you get into American history. That's and it was that experience that really highlighted for me as if I, I mean I had known this, but I, I guess I really felt it in a very visceral way or came to know it in a very visceral way, how difficult it is for African Americans who are descendants of slaves to get back past the 1870 census, where former slaves finally begin to be named by name as persons in the census and for men as citizens and so on. So that really uh, was striking to me, and it led me to thinking much more deeply about source materials. And then when I actually tried to do, once I had located this former slave of Joseph Holtz, the actual practice of trying to dig up his history versus the abundance of material that was available for me, even though I couldn't answer every question I had about Joseph Holt, I could answer a whole lot of questions. And it was so hard. Uh, and, And I felt that that was... Uh, part of the story I wanted to tell, I wanted to weave the stories of these two men together uh, and their their disparate but imp- but important contributions to emancipation and the saving of the union. But I also wanted to tell the story about how a historian does difficult work. And I think one a key reason I wanted to tell that story, was because I wanted in a kind of, um, you know, I've been around a long time historian way to say to other historians, you can't let yourself off the hook that easily. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, it's true, it's difficult to understand Sandy Holt's life, but it's not impossible to find out a lot more than we generally look for. You know, we we are accustomed to certain kinds of sources. We gravitate to them naturally. They're easy to find and under pressure of publication, it might be understandable why you would say, okay, I'm just going to do the history of this white middle class guy who left me lots of papers. But uh, that's not a reason to not try. And um, I, I really wanted to show in addition to telling the story of Sandy Holt as best I could, I wanted to show that it can be told, you know, it, it, or sure. can be told. It can be brought to the surface, and he can become more than just a, the slave, you know, in quotation marks. He can be a person with a name and a family and a history and details about his life and his health and, you know, stuff like that. 
I'm curious, this isn't mentioned in your book, but I want to ask it anyway about both the book, but also perhaps the student project. Uh, if oral history or oral tradition played any role, and I, I ask that because I'm thinking of how, uh, as you say, historians, professionally trained historians are, are accustomed to looking at certain sources. Right. That's what we right. saw in grad school. Um and those sources, in turn, uh, are automatically given advantage to the kind of people who generated those sources. Right, absolutely. And we're taught to be skeptical of, of sources like uh, memory and especially oral tradition. Right. Uh, which, in fact, are, are, are valid, other valid ways of reaching the past. Well, and I think, you know, we uh, conversely, we tend to think that something that is written down as a text, we give it a lot more credibility mm-hmm. than maybe it sometimes deserves, right? Just because it's printed doesn't mean it's reliable, no. right? But <laughs> if there's something very, um, yeah, persuasive just about something being printed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say indirectly, uh, yes, oral history uh, played into certainly finding out about Sandy and the other men that I studied in the 118th USCT. And of course, as you know from seeing the book, there's a lot, it's really like a collective biography. I mm-hmm. try to talk about Sandy, but it's, it's such bits and pieces to talk about him that I try to bring in the stories of other um, figures to help flesh out his story. But getting back to your question about oral history, I mm-hmm. one of the key sources I used for understanding, because Sandy wasn't literate, so he didn't leave us letters and diaries, and even if he had been literate, he probably wouldn't have had the time or energy to leave them for us. But be, most of the black soldiers, and Sandy included, applied for pensions after the war. Mm-hmm. And they gave, and their colleagues gave, and their families gave deposition after deposition after deposition. And these were all done orally, but they were written down by somebody. Mm-hmm. But there, these, de- these oral depositions, re- reflecting back on the Civil War service, they're very important documents. They're some of the only places we actually sort of hear their voices you know, it's not quite direct, but it's it's something. And I'm sorry, I don't. Are you hearing a lot of noise? Because my cat is racing around on the couch behind my head. <laughs> no, no, I, the the cat is welcome to cats oh, are welcome good. on the show. Oh, um, good, because he's doing something with my curtains right now. <laughs> 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 a tremendous uh, amount of noise in my ears. <laughs> the <laughs> the uh, uh, listeners to the show know that uh, we lost our longtime 21-year-old cat oh, uh, about okay. a month ago. Oh. And uh, But she used to howl in the background when I was doing oh, the show wow. from home on occasion. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's no no problem with uh, we are open to felines uh, and 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 canines uh, and fish anybody welcome uh, well I'm, one place where these these two lines of inquiry intersect uh, that I thought was interesting uh, document documentary history and uh, tracing history of enslaved people was your reference to slave insurance. Uh, oh, yes, right. What it, it, it talk, that was just a little tidbit that uh, I hadn't come across before. What, when did Joseph Holt need slave insurance, and what was it? 
Well, it was insurance, like you'd buy a policy on a piece of property, you know, in case something happened to that property so that you could be protected. And I guess I am only aware of him ever having bought insurance on this particular slave, Sandy. And it seemed to have been at a time when Sandy was doing a lot of traveling for Holt between the family homestead in Stevensport or Holt's Bottom, Kentucky, in Breckenridge County there, and Louisville, which is where Holt had an office as a lawyer before he moved to Washington. So for fear that Sandy might run away or be drowned while traveling on the river, uh, Holt, under the encouragement of his brother Thomas, who was uh, quite an adamant slaveholder, um, (laughs) bought this insurance uh, to protect himself in case there was some incident. And it was quite common, I gather, for a period of time in the 1840s, 1850s to buy that kind of insurance. It was very expensive. And, And one of the things I think I note in the book is not only that it was quite expensive, but that, I mean, I don't read every detail on my insurance policies, but I certainly hope they actually pay out at some point. And this, you look at the fine print and you think, well, it basically says you'll never get the money back (laughs) because it, you know, this exclusion and that exclusion and that exclusion. And I thought, good grief, you know, what would actually have to happen that he would get the money back on this policy? But he didn't end up needing it because nothing ever happened while the insurance was in effect. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the Monty Python insurance sketch. Uh, the, your policy clearly states no claim you make will ever be paid. That's exactly. why the premiums are so cheap. Yeah. And if we do pay it, your premium's going way up to compensate for the fact that we had to pay out on the pre, on the you know insurance, which I always think is funny. Well, but, not funny, but yeah. no. But but the the idea that uh, you buy insurance on a piece of property because it's likely to run away because. Right. Sandy is traveling between the family homestead and right. the office in Louisville by himself. Right. Uh, so on the got, one hand, he's trusted enough to make the trip. On right. the other hand, just in case, you know, you make sure you've covered yourself. But as you point out, Sandy is, is at this point recently married, not legally in the eyes of the law, but uh, right. but has a family and and has an incentive not to run away and and had never shown any sign of doing it. Although the irony is, ultimately, he does run away and join the army, which I thought was kind of a sweet irony that, yeah. you know, well, that, that's, he did run away. So, I mean, that brings us to the United States Colored Troops. The, the 118th Regiment organizes in 1864 in Kentucky. And uh, Kentucky is, is a Union state. It's a loyal state. It is not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, because there's no need to suppress secession there, in theory, uh, and so it 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 you on the one hand you'd think uh, it'd be a great place to recruit uh, African Americans, but the Euro Americans in the state are not at all happy about this. Well, the slaveholders certainly are not happy about it, and Lincoln, of course, is very sensitive to the issue and does not want to alienate those white unionists in Kentucky. So he's quite slow to authorize recruiting in Kentucky of black soldiers because he knows this is going to be a problem. But eventually, you know, he he allows it 
to happen. And partly he he allows and then you know authorizes, encourages it because the soldiers are running away to the black the slaves are running away to other states where it is possible to recruit them and join in the army anyway. So uh, he figures they might as well. So that's where we see, uh, as you say, Sandy and others leaving uh, their plantation, leaving their masters, leaving the Holt family and joining this regiment. Uh, the regiment's service is, uh, it, it's not dramatic. Uh, you point, they, they don't get to uh, uh, Petersburg, Virginia in time for the Battle of the Crater, which everyone right. listening to the show is familiar with. Uh, they're not there for, for Chaffin's Farm, uh, right. a less well-known but, but very bloody engagement for uh, USCT. They don't really fight in any big battles, so you'd think service isn't too hard, but, but it is. Well, it is if you think about how very hard and difficult, you know, how, how challenging fatigue duty was, and mm-hmm. that's what they spend a lot of time doing. And their involvement, of course, at Dutch Gap is grueling and awful. And then they go to Texas. So, you know, they are part of the occupation forces and so on. But if you're looking for a regiment that was engaged in a lot of shooting, you know, of guns, they, that's not the regiment. But that doesn't mean that they were not involved in the war and playing their part, you know, within that Army of the James. And, that, and suffering tremendous casualties, again, something familiar to every listener is, is that there are more disease casualties than, oh, than combat casualties, and, and theirs are very high. We'll take another short break and come back, talk more about the 118th USCT and Sandy Holt, and uh, uh, continue to weave in the story of Joseph Holt and their experiences in the post-war years. We're talking tonight with Elizabeth D. Leonard, author of Slaves, Slaveholders, and a Kentucky Community's Struggle Toward Freedom. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Elizabeth Leonard, author of Slaves, Slaveholders, and a Kentucky Community's Struggle Toward Freedom. It's a story of a well-known white figure in the war, Joseph Holt, the Judge Advocate General under the Lincoln administration, a uh, tireless uh, crusader ultimately against slavery and for uh, black freedom, enlistment of black troops after being a pre-war slaveholder. And at the same time, uh, one of Holt's own former slaves, Sandy Holt, who serves in the 118th USCT, we left off talking about that regiment. You mentioned Dutch Gap. My recent bedtime reading has been Theodore Lyman's journal, uh, read a few pages every night, uh, who served in, in, in the book is called Mead's Army. Uh, and just the other night, he was talking about how the troops uh, are being put to work digging this canal at Dutch Gap. Mm-hmm. And the rebels would just drop a mortar shell in every now and then and kill a few of them. Uh, yeah. It's incredibly difficult and dangerous work. Uh, it's not combat in a sense, but right. uh, but these troops put up with a great deal. Oh, yes. And the, and it was, you know, they're standing in the water and there was all these, all this, you know, disease and mosquitoes and, you know, the conditions were just horrible. And then the Confederates were everywhere shooting at them all the time because they're down in the gap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just a, a horrible situation, I think. Now, after the fighting stops, uh, they were recruited late in the war, uh, first in, last in, will be last out. So they end up getting sent to Brownsville, Texas. Uh, what's going on in, in, that requires uh, Union troops in Brownsville? Well, I think it, largely it has to do with concerns about what's going on in Mexico and whether the French Northern Napoleon is trying to stir up trouble in Mexico and maybe there are some Confederate holdouts who are involved with that. There's just some international border concerns. And initially, black troops were sent directly into the Confederate the heart of the Confederacy to serve as occupation forces mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the war, but it becomes clear that they are not safe and their presence is so bitterly resented by the white former Confederates that they might as well be sent off to, uh, you know, the frontier instead. So that's where they, they go. And there they, again, don't have particularly, I mean, they're just occupation forces and mm-hmm. a kind of threat 
to uh, to try to stem any trouble. I, I imagine it was quite dull service. Although I do think that for them, that there was a a strong sense of still the honor of doing so. You know, the nation's work, whatever it is. You know. Mm-hmm. To, to be wearing the uniform and doing the nation's work, even if it's not particularly stimulating. And getting paid, which must have been awfully nice after years of, you know, spending your whole life in servitude. Yeah, so you point out the black soldiers get paid less than the white soldiers, but they right. do get paid. They do. And it, it was interesting to learn, the, the ones trying to dig that Dutch Gap Canal, since they were under fire, they got an extra eight cents per hour. Right, but uh, only... I. But only, I think, at the beginning, and then that premium was removed from the, the later people who came in. They, they did not get that money. Wow. So these troops in Texas are there uh, keeping an eye on international border situation. And you mentioned uh, in, in a story that's already opaque or at least difficult <laughs> to penetrate historically because of the, the challenge of sources, an even more mysterious event. Apparently there's a, a raid by... Union troops into Mexico, an unauthorized raid of some sort? Yeah, it's so murky, but it seems like there uh, there's a raid. It's not clear if it's encouraged by some sort of rogue former white officers or whatever, and it's not even clear who, which troops ended up on the other side of the border. There are stories about them massacring you know, Mexican civilians, but then there's, you know, stories about them only being, there only being a few of them there, but it's, it gets a lot of press attention as the press is trying to understand what actually happened. And it's kind of the last bit of the, the uh, time of service that the 118th is even in, in the army, you know, before they get decommissioned. So it's a murky affair. It, it, it is, again, something doesn't appear in most books, but uh, but we see this here. Now, the 118th returns to Kentucky, and, and the, the third and final section of your book touches, uh, you know, focuses on the situation in Kentucky. Uh, you know, Ann Marshall has written that, that yeah. uh, excellent book on, on the, the, the post-war status yeah. of Kentucky, a Confederate Kentucky after the war. Here's a state, uh, as you describe it, that wants things back the way they were. Uh, the, the white residents want things back the way they were before the war. That's what they fought for. Uh, they weren't rebels. They don't deserve to be punished. Uh, they expect to have things as they were, including slavery. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Patrick Lewis's book, uh, For Slavery and Union, is another example of this, how so many con- loyal Union Kentuckians Mm-hmm. believe this was the way to keep slavery alive, was be loyal to the Union. Right. So right. now you've got this post-war situation, and they're not happy. Right. And I think Ann Marshall, uh, among others, points out that Kentucky in the post-war period becomes one of the most lawless mm-hmm. places uh, in in the United States in the post-war you know, years. And it's really the ones who suffer most, of course, are... The former slaves whose status is for a while not very clear because, as you point out, they haven't been, you know, the the, um, 
Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to them. And, you know, even with the 13th Amendment, Kentucky is refusing to ratify it. And it's really quite a mess. So uh, it, it's a tumultuous period. And, and Kentucky, as I think Anne also, you know, makes clear, really, it's hard to remember that it was a union state after a while because the behavior is so quintessentially post-Confederate. And, and this makes it a difficult place for the, the soldiers to return to. Now, you talk about the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, right. in, in popular memory, they come bringing 40 acres and a mule for every freed person. Uh, <laughs> but that that's just the, the folk memory. Uh, right. I, what, what really happened? Well, I think that the Freedmen's Bureau had an impossible task to try to accomplish, uh, in the sense that it was, you know, authorized for a very short period of time. It was understaffed. It had a lot of work to do. It, we think of it as the Freedmen's Bureau, but it also was supposed to deal with refugees and abandoned lands. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had so much work to do in so little time and poor staffing. And there were some very good um, people who served for the served the Freedmen's Bureau. And I think the person that I mentioned, I think his name is Lawwell, kind of a strange, um, unfamiliar name. Uh, A.W. Lawwell, he he tried very hard to bring to the federal government's attention the plight of these former slaves and particularly, I think, the plight of the soldiers, the, the veterans, who may have taken the brunt of some of this rage in Kentucky because they somehow represented the worst of what emancipation had brought to the state or done to the state. So, uh, but they could only do so much and they could have, they, they could only do so much under the best of circumstances. And the opposition was just enormous white opposition to black progress. It wasn't unanimous, but it was pretty darn strong. And a lot of the former slaves uh, including veterans, just move away, move out of Kentucky because they, they feel so hopeless about having a future there that is any brighter than the, the past that they thought they'd left behind. Sandy, however, does mm-hmm. remain, which is kind of interesting. He ends up basically back in the same neighborhood where he had started out. And uh, that's sort of the way the story comes together at the end is that, well, you know, some did stay and reconnect with the communities that they had left and how everybody tries the whites and the blacks try to navigate that period together where there are personal connections i think that was some of the most touching material for me even though it wasn't always pleasing but it was interesting to see people trying to navigate the sort of now what do we do we all lived together before we were a big you know, community, and then we were shattered, and now we're back together, and how do we do this thing? I, that really comes out clearly in that section, that, that sense of what what do we do next? Yeah. Uh, and how do we relate yeah. to each other, and yeah. It, 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 as you, you point out, many people leave. You ask, you know, rhetorically, why would any why former slave stay back? in Kentucky, yeah. uh, given the hostility that they face? And yet, as you say, Sandy Holt, and, and perhaps a third of the others... Yeah. Uh, uh, from his regiment, choose to stay there. He applies for a pension, which right. uh, <laughs> it, it's the classic red tape story. He applies oh, and applies, yeah. and he finally gets the pension. 
He does, just barely, you know, and then um, he ends up dying, you know, so. <laughs> so he uh, never collects it. Uh, yeah. It's very sad. Yeah, and his family, I mean, I did sort of try to trace his family um, forward as best I could, at least for a couple of decades, and you can really see the poverty and... That, you know, that lingers with the family. I, I would love to know if I could, you know, meet any of his descendants today. I do know some of Joseph Holt's brother's descendants. I don't know any of Sandy's uh, descendants, but it would be so interesting to know where they are, you know, a hundred and some years later. Well, if, if anyone listening to the show knows any Holt's in Kentucky who might be related contact Professor Leonard at Colby College. Um, so Holt himself, Joseph Holt, he also comes back to Kentucky, but not yep. not right away after the Civil War. Right. He comes back, uh, I think he comes back for the first time in the late 1870s, maybe. Mm-hmm. His alienation from his Confederate family is bitter and protracted. And it's a sort of younger generation that draws him back in and reconnects with him. And eventually he does come back for a few visits. And then he does come back and is buried at the family homestead um, in the end. So and dies right, you know, two years different from when two years earlier, I guess, than Sandy dies. And I don't know. I suspect they may have seen each other again, but I don't have a an actual document that demonstrates that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he ends up. They all end up back in Kentucky, back in Breckenridge County. So you you point out that there are these personal connections that people make, uh, you know, mm-hmm. with with Sandy Holt, for example, people in his community, both white and black, support his pension application. Yeah. Uh, and I want to, as we come to an end here, bring back a point you make in your introduction that uh, in here in 2019, we, we are in a, a period of a, a extraordinary political polarization. People, we, a lot of us, people we've known a long time who, for whom political differences now become so difficult, it's hard to yeah. maintain healthy relationships anymore. And you reference that that angst in, in the introduction to your book. Uh, does the the outcome give you some reason for optimism? The outcome of your research of, of Holt reuniting with his family give you some reason to think uh, we've been through this before. We can we can make it again. I I would like to be more optimistic than I am. I I, I there are there are bits of light. Let me put it that way. You know, mm-hmm. bits of hope. Uh, but it's not an overwhelmingly hopeful picture. On the other hand, it's not a picture of, you know, unspeakable and irrevocable despair, uh, which is where I sometimes feel like we are right now. <laughs> you know, so it does remind me, uh, you know, it we don't have to sink into total despair. There is possibility. And certainly what the, what they went through was so terrible, um, you know. In some ways, it can give us perhaps uh, a little bit of. Little inspiration to, and maybe uh, a little guidance. You know that exactly. time, time passes, and where there is, there are personal connections. Those can be, in some cases, forged again, even if they have shattered. Um, and people can reach across seemingly impossible divides and try to piece things back together. 
Um, but well, it's hard work. It's hard work, but that, that is one of the great things about studying history. The idea that it uh, has nothing to do with the present is is so 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 completely wrong to anyone who, who spends any time reading it, uh, or all of you listening to the show will already know that uh, that this does speak to to us. Uh, all history speaks to us today. In this book, in particular, slaves, slaveholders, and a Kentucky community's struggle toward freedom. The author is Elizabeth Leonard. Elizabeth, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.